Hey, good morning, Brookstone. Welcome to church. It is so good to see all of you here this morning. You know, it occurs to me that every single Sunday I step to this place and I say, it is so good to see all of you here this morning. And I mean that because imagine how discouraging it would be if I stepped to this place and looked up and there was nobody here. I would be really discouraged. I would probably go ahead and preach, but it wouldn't be nearly as much fun. So God bless you. Thank you for coming out on this June morning. I'm glad you're here. It is, of course, vacation season, and we have many folks traveling and taking their vacations. So for all of you who are um, out and about in some tropical location, we jealously say good morning to you if you're watching online. And we're glad by the uh, power of technology you can join with us online today. Uh, but I'm glad that you're here. Take your Bibles, no matter if you're watching online or if you're in the room. Turn with me, please, to two passages again today. So we're going to begin uh, by turning to Matthew chapter 6. Please go ahead and find Matthew. Matthew's the first um, book of your New Testament. So first gospel. And then go to, uh, once you found your place in Matthew, hold your, your finger there, put a Bible marker there. And then turn to 1 Timothy, please. Uh, and we're going to go to 1 Timothy chapter number 6 as well. And 1 Timothy is kind of in the middle of your New Testament, so toward the back of your Bible. Uh, it won't help you much, but it's right in front of 2 Timothy, okay? Uh, it comes after Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, Thessalonians, uh, Philippians, right in there. You'll come to 1 and 2 Timothy. Somebody asked me recently, they said, they said, why do you do that? Every time you tell us where to turn, you tell us where to find it in the Bible. And I said, we know. We know where to find it in the Bible. But here's the thing, not everybody does because a lot of people are coming to know Jesus in our church, amen? So they're new to their Bibles and we're learning, we're all learning together. So uh, if you know where it's at, great, I'm glad you do and, and uh, others among us are learning uh, where to find these books of the Bible and so that's the reason I do that. Uh, Scott was showing us the video and celebrating all that God did at uh, our Summer Splash, which is Vacation Bible School. So I'm so grateful for uh, those that trusted in Jesus as their Savior, 57 kids who made a profession of faith. And that's awesome that they did that. We're going to help that grow, right? This is a, kind of the, the, the beginning for them. They've just learned what it means to understand who God is and their own need as a sinner and to put their faith in Him. And we're discipling them and helping them grow. I'm thankful for that, but I have to tell you, I was, it's not too strong a word to say overwhelmed. I was overwhelmed this week by the number of adults who were serving in, in uh, Vacation Bible School. Um, if you follow me on social media, I put up a picture about midweek. This is the best Vacation Bible School picture I've ever seen. It was a long table with a bunch of preschoolers, and it was surrounded by adults. I mean, the, the ratio was like, like two kids to an adult. I mean, think about this, church. We had about 350 kids here through the week. We had over 200 adults serving those 350 kids every week. It's unheard of. And I just love that about you. I love your willingness to serve. And so for all of you who did and, and, uh, and, and you were here every night this week, God bless you. Thank you so much for doing that. And I just love uh, your heart for the Lord. And, and great will be your reward in heaven uh, for your faithfulness to his kids. Um, well, listen, let's pray. We're going to jump in. I've got a lot of ground to cover this morning. I want to be mindful of our time and steward it well. And so let me just pray, and then we're going to start uh, studying in 1 Timothy 6. Lord, uh, it really is good for us to be here today, and we're thankful for the privilege to be able to lift our voices in worship. And God, I know we're individual people, and we've all come from different places, and we all have different struggles and various things that we're facing, uh, bondages, things that we're enslaved to. 
kind of fears that we live with, maybe some opinions and worldviews and ideas and ways of thinking that aren't in line with your, with your word. And uh, maybe there are some things, God, that, uh, that we're facing this week. We don't know how we're going to get through them. So I, I know that we all need to hear from you uh, personally and individually, and I'm grateful that you speak to us that way. But I'm also aware of the fact that we are blessed to be able to come as a bunch of individuals, but to become one, really as one body, one, one voice to lift our praise to you and as one congregation studying together the truths of your one and only word. And so I praise you for this privilege. And now I would simply ask that over these next few minutes, you would allow me to be your voice, to speak your word with with um, simplicity, God, to say the things that will please you, that will be clear, and that your Holy Spirit would illuminate the truths of Scripture for us. And may the result be the transformation of our lives and the glory of our Savior. And God, as you do those things, we'll have to say it was worth being here. It was good to be in your house. And so we, we pray these things with confidence in the strong name of Jesus, our Savior. And everybody said out loud together, amen, amen. Hey, some of you will remember that about a year and a half ago, uh, in fact, it was in January of 2018, which was a significant season for us as a church, if you remember, because we, we had just moved into this new campus in mid-November. Uh, we were only a few weeks in this new campus, and we're beginning our first full calendar year uh, as a church in a new location. So it was a really important season for us, and I was doing some teaching relative to that, and, and so some of you might remember that uh, in January of 2018, I gave you some really eye-opening um, financial statistics, and, and they, they remain true today, and so I want to remind you of them real quickly. Let me give you some numbers. Um, there are seven and a half billion, with a B, seven and a half billion people in the world, and every person in this room has more money than 97% of those people. No, I want to say that again because it's a pretty startling fact. There's seven and a half billion people in the world and every single one of us, no matter who you are, every one of us have more money than 97% of them. The fact is our personal incomes are 24 times the global average. So here's what that, that works out to be. That on average, the American family lives on an income of $150 a day. Some more, some less, that's average. $150 a day. And when you compare that to nations around the world, you begin to discover we are immeasurably wealthy. Spain, for instance, the average income in Spain is $75 per day. That's what they live on there. And that's, that's actually very, very high. In China, it's $22. Compare it. Average American family, $150 a day. Average Chinese family, $22 a day. In India, it's $4 a day on average. And as we've learned recently, in Rwanda, it's 82 cents a day. We live on $150 a day on average. They live on an average of 82 cents a day. Very often, we kind of think about ourselves. We say, you know what? I'm not a wealthy person. We're just average, kind of ordinary people. But relative to the rest of the world, we are amazingly blessed by God. 
and incredibly affluent. Even the most poverty-stricken people in America are more wealthy than 76% of the rest of the world. Now, here's the fact that when you live in, a, in an economy, when you live in a country which boasts such affluence, there are some temptations that come along with that affluence. And one of those temptations is that we would begin to bow at the altar of materialism. It's the, it's the temptation to be materialistic. So everything in my life uh, is, is measured by and my joy and happiness in life, my peace is all determined by the material things that I gain. Because everybody around me, I see them having so many material goods and I need to have those things as well. If you've been on the mission field, you've probably come home from a mission trip and said something like this. Those people that I was serving on the mission field, they have so little and yet they're so happy. You see, their God, their temptation, while they have their own, it's not what ours is. It's not materialism. The other temptation that we face as an affluent society is the temptation to wealth worship. So, so wealth begins to be the idol in our lives and our accumulation of things. Now, the Bible confronts both of these temptations, and it, it confronts it in a bold uh, way. And in fact, the confrontation, the, the, the confrontation that Scripture makes against these temptations of affluence is one of God's five to survive, okay? So you know we're considering the five to survive, and this is one of them. I want you to write it down. This is what we're going to be talking about today. Here's the command. God says, do not serve money. That's the command. Do not serve money. Now, while you're writing that down, let me tell you, I love the practicality of Scripture. I love the sensibleness or the sensibility of Scripture. This is the most relevant life book that you'll ever put your hands on. It tells you how to live in relationship with so many things and, and, uh, and uh, uh, influences in life. You know, we learned a few weeks ago, it tells us how to relate to God. We are to follow the greatest commandment, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Where did we learn that? We learned it from the Bible. The Bible tells us how to relate to one another. It tells me what kind of husband to be, what kind of wife you should be, what, how to be a, a good parent. It tells us how to relate to people that have offended us and, and people who live around us. That, that second great commandment is that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. A few weeks ago, we talked about the fact that the Bible tells us how to relate to hurting people, the weak and broken among us. James 1.27 is that, that command that says that pure and undefiled religion before God is to visit or to help or to lift the hurting, the orphans and the widows among us. Today, the scripture is going to teach us how we should live in relation to money or wealth and possessions. And one thing that I know is that whenever I preach about money, which is not very often, I know that I am standing on solid biblical ground. I'm not having to make this stuff up as I go because the Bible has much to say about money and wealth and possessions. So many things the scripture says to us about this. In fact, some people have said, I don't know if this is true or not, I've never tried to count each instance, but some people have said that the Bible speaks more about money than it does faith or prayer 
or worship. I don't know if that's true, but I know it talks about money and wealth and possessions a lot. But here's the way it does it. The Bible doesn't talk about money as the object or the topic of discussion. Because here's the thing. Money is neither good nor bad. Money is amoral. It's not moral. It's not immoral. Money and possessions and wealth has no spiritual or moral compass. It has no spiritual or moral responsibility. It's just a commodity. It's just a possession. Now, some of you are thinking right now, but wait a minute, doesn't the Bible say, I know I've read this somewhere, doesn't the Bible say that the root of all evil is money? No, no, it doesn't say that. I know the verse you're thinking of, it's in 1 Timothy 6. We'll read it in just a second and see exactly what it says. The Bible does not tell us that money is either good or bad. Whenever the Bible talks about money, it doesn't talk about money as much as it talks about us and our willingness to steward money and wealth and possessions and manage it in a way and harness its power rather than being managed by it and our lives being harnessed by its power. And so we're going to read these two passages. We'll begin in 1 Timothy 6 and then we'll move over to, uh, uh, to uh, Matthew chapter 6. But, but listen, we're going to begin with a values assessment, right? So we'll kind of start with a more philosophical, and then we'll get very practical as we get over to Matthew about the how-to. So you have your Bibles open to 1 Timothy 6. Follow along as I read beginning in verse number 6. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 6. Paul says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, food and clothing, let us be therewith content. But he that will be rich, he that desires to be rich, he that is greedy for gain, he that will be rich shall fall into temptation and into a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money, there's the verse, not money, but the love of money. Money doesn't have love or hate. But for the person who loves money, that, he says, is the root of all evil. Which, while some, having coveted after money, they have erred from the faith and have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. All right, so stop right there. Let's begin with the values assessment. What Paul does in this letter to Timothy is that he compares covetousness or greed with contentment, right? And he says, which of these two things is more important? Covetousness, worldly gain, or contentment with what God provides? Now listen to verses number 9 and 10. He warns of the danger of covetousness or worldliness. Those that desire to be rich and wealthy, those whose lives are motivated by the possession, the accumulation of things. He says, these people are going to find themselves in a world of hurt. And honestly, these two verses don't even need any explanation. Just look at the words, verses 9 and 10. Look at these words. There's temptation, a snare, foolishness, hurtful lusts, drowning, destruction, perdition. Verse 10. For the love of money is the root of all evil. There's coveting. They err. They pierce themselves through with many sorrows. When you just read these words, you go, I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be the person whose life is pierced 
through with sorrows, who swallowed up in destruction because my life was spent pursuing worldly gain or pursuing money. So he says, beware of the danger of covetousness. But in verses 6, 7, and 8, he elevates or extols the value of contentment. Do you know what contentment is? Look at what he says in verse number 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. In verse number 7, he gives us the proper perspective. Here it is, verse number 7. For you came into this world with nothing, and you can be sure you will leave with nothing. If you know this is true, would you shout amen? When you got here, you didn't arrive with a $5 bill in your hand. You might have been born with a silver spoon in your mouth, but somebody put it there. When you got here, you had nothing. And you can mark it down one day when they put us in the ground, we will leave with nothing. Nothing. And so the only thing that really matters is what I have between my arrival and my departure. And what Paul teaches Timothy is this. The only thing that really matters while I'm here is that I have what I must have, food and raiment, food and clothing. He says, if I got food in my belly and I got a coat on to keep me warm, I'm okay. That's not all, that, that's all I have to have. That doesn't mean it's all I'm going to have, but it means that's all I have to have. And he says in verse number six, so be content with that. The word content means to be satisfied, to, to rest. Everybody shout the word rest, say it. Re- contentment is rest. It is to rest in God's provision. When I'm content, I'm finding godliness and trusting and resting in the Lord rather than breathlessly, endlessly pursuing more and more and more and more. And when I rest in God's provision, then, because I'm not consumed with pursuing things for my own gain, when I rest in God's provision, I'm able to take what God does give to me and use it for the advancement of his kingdom and for his glory and for my good. So here's the values assessment. You can live with covetousness or you can live with contentment. You can live constantly pursuing money and wealth and possessions. That's dangerous. Or you can live content and find godliness and in fact find true wealth because he says in verse six, that is great gain. Now skip over to verse number 17. Still in 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. Paul says to Timothy, charge them that are rich in this world. Everybody look up here. That's us. I established that at the beginning. You may say, I don't feel rich. I'm not rich compared to the people around me. I promise you, relative to the rest of the world, we're all rich. He says, those that are rich in this world, here's what they need to hear. This is the command. Charge them that are rich in this world that they not be high-minded. That's proud or arrogant. If you have uh, wealth, don't be arrogant or prideful, boastful about that. Don't trust in uncertain riches, but rather trust in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Now, praise God. He says in verse number six, seven, and eight, all you need is food and clothing. Be content with that. But God is good. He's gonna give you more than that. And those things that he gives you are there for you to enjoy. That's what verse number 17 says. Uh, Enjoy these blessings that God has given to us. But also verse 18 Charge them that they do good with their wealth, that they be rich in good works and ready, willing, eager it means, eager to distribute, willing to communicate. Here's what it means. Charge them 
That is, they're between their arrival and their departure when they had nothing and they'll leave with nothing. In these days between, God's going to take care of their needs. And as he gives them more, charge them to trust in God, enjoy what he gives, and then be open-handed. Be willing to live with generosity. Be willing, be ready to give, to give away some of what God gives to us. And then look at verse number 19. He says, in so doing, they will be, verse 19, laying up in store, storing up for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. He says, when we live this way, knowing that we got here with nothing, we're leaving with nothing, in the meantime, God gives us everything we need, and of everything that he gives us, we should enjoy it, we should do good with it, we should be willing to give some of it away. He says, when you do that, when you live with that kind of contentment, you are laying up a good treasure in heaven. Now that phrase, verse number 19, they are laying up in store a good foundation to lay hold on eternal life is a phrase you're gonna see again over in Matthew. So go over there, if you will. Matthew chapter number six, and let's read it. You'll see this exact same phrase. Matthew six, beginning in verse number 19. It begins with these words, lay not up. There's the phrase, Lay up or lay not up on the earth. Verse 19, lay not up, do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon the earth. Where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But rather lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. Verse 22, the light of the body or the window of the body is the eye. If therefore the eye be single, the King James says, it means sincere. If the eye is singular and sincere, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye be evil, then the whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great or how deep is that darkness? Verse 24, no man can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Here's the command, don't serve money. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon means wealth, it means money, possessions. You cannot serve God and money. Everybody shout the word cannot. You cannot. Can some people and others can't? Is it, is it that I can do that on a good day? Are there some really super spiritual people who can do it? No, you cannot Serve both God and money. These are the words of Jesus. Verse number 25. Therefore, because you cannot serve God and money, therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life. What you shall eat or what you shall drink or for your body, what you shall put on. Is not the body more than meat and the, or life more than meat and the body more than clothing? Behold the fowls of the air. They sow not, neither do they reap. They don't plant a garden. They don't gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not better than they? And which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit to his stature? And why do you take thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field. They, how they grow. They don't toil. They don't spin at a, at a loom. They don't make their own clothes. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is here and tomorrow is cast in the oven, shall he not much more clothe you? O ye of little faith, therefore, take no thought, saying, what shall we eat? 
Or where shall, what shall we drink? Or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you have need of these things. Verse 33. But seek ye first. You, first of all, seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. Now, what you have in 1 Timothy is this values assessment. Am I a greedy person or am I a content person? And he helps us to understand the dangers and the blessing of both. Then you come to Matthew. Jesus uses the same kind of terminology, and he instructs us about how it is that we can find contentment, that we cannot serve money, but rather find a a position, a relationship with money and wealth that pleases God. So let's learn how to do it. Write this down, if you will. The first thing Jesus teaches us in, the, in uh, verse number six or chapter six is that we must set our affection. Here's the command: set your affection. Set your affection. Now, I mentioned earlier that you'll see in verse number nineteen that that when Paul in First Timothy said, "You're laying up in store this foundation for eternal life," he's using terminology: lay up or store up. He's using terminology that Jesus used here in Matthew chapter number 6. He's saying that Jesus says that we should not lay up our treasures on the earth. Now, if you have a more modern translation of the Bible, it uses the word store up. Do not store up for yourself treasures on the earth. Store up, lay up means store up, right? So lay up means to reserve in store or to amass an accumulation of, or to make deposits into, to amass a great amount. And of course, the word treasure means that uh, that true wealth or what you have on deposit. Jesus says in verse 19, do not make all of your deposits on the earth. Lay up more in heaven than you lay on the earth. Here's the principle. He says that you should amass greater wealth in heaven than you do on the earth. Amass greater wealth in heaven than you do on the earth. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on the earth. Now, let me ask you a question. Is Jesus giving us, in verse 19, a prohibition against savings accounts? Do not lay up for yourself treasures on the earth. Does he mean we cannot have a savings account? Should all of us in obedience to this command go cash in our 401ks, give it all away, not have any savings account or retirement account? He said not to, sa- not to save up on the earth. Is that the command? Of course not. Let me show you another verse, totally different subject, but he uses the same terminology. Look on the screens. It's John 6 and verse 27. Jesus speaking. Do not work for food that perishes but rather work for the food that endures unto life eternal, which the Son of Man will give you. So in John 6, 27, it's Jesus saying, don't go to work and earn grocery money. No, of course not. What he's saying is there's a meat, there's a sustenance, there's a food that's more important than earthly food. There's something more important than just feeding your belly. It's that eternal food, that spiritual meat. In the same way, when he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on the earth, he's not saying that we shouldn't save money. What he's saying is, know this, there is an eternal savings account. There are eternal investments that we need to be making that are more important than any savings, any accumulation we have down here. That's the point. 
Jesus says, don't lay up treasures. Don't amass your great treasure here. Amass it there. Now, why should I lay up more treasure in heaven than I do on the earth? Well, verses 19 and 20 tell us one reason. It's because of security. It's not secure enough down here. Look at verse 19. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on the earth where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust corrupt and where thieves do not break through and steal. Here's what he says. Everything that you reserve up in this life is always at risk, right? This is true. Everything that we accumulate here, we can lose. If I get it today, I can lose it tomorrow. You know, I mean, somebody might come in and steal it, moths eat it away, it rusts away. That beautiful possession we got, give it five years, 10 years, 20 years, it'll rust away. That beautiful, expensive clothing we accumulated, just hang in the closet long enough, the moths will get to it. You know, you just put your money in the savings account, which we all ought to do, but man, the economy can turn down, stock market might crash, and it just vanishes. I mean, it's always at risk. And he said, in heaven, things are more secure. Praise God for that. In heaven, no thieves break through. In heaven, there's no uh, moth and there's no rust. So he said, you ought to amass greater wealth in heaven than you do here because of security, but there's a much more important reason, and that more important reason is in verse number 21. Here it is. It's the issue of attraction. Attraction. Verse 21, for where your treasure is, where you amass your treasure, there will your heart be also. He says, the reason you should amass more wealth in heaven than you do in the earth is because this, write it down, it's a principle, that our wealth or our treasure always attracts our heart. Always. Where I put my treasure, that's where my heart longs to be. Now look at verses 22 and 23 where he he illustrates this. Excuse me, he says in verse 22, the light of the body. And here's another way to say that. The window in my body, the window to my soul are the eyes. The light of the body is the eye. Therefore, if your eye is sincere, if it's singularly focused on Christ, if your focus is heaven, then your body or your life will be full of, of light. If my focus, the focus of my gaze, my my eyes is on heaven, then my heart longs for heaven and the light of heaven floods into my soul. But, verse number 23, but if your eye is evil or if your eye is focused only on the world, on money, on possessions, on the gain of coveting this world, if this is where I look all the time, my heart is connected here, then what flows in through my eye window into my soul. Verse 23 says darkness flows in. The darkness of the world. And so rather than having a light full of the light of heaven, I have a life filled with the darkness of this world. Now this is not hard for us to understand if we've, if we've watched any kids grow up. How many of us know you have a four-year-old, five-year-old, ten-year-old kid. They're just, their eyes are bright. They're, they love their mama. They love their daddy. They love what's right. They love Jesus. They, they love They love Sunday school. They love Bible school. They just have the light of joy in their lives. And what happens so often when they become adolescents? The influences begin to change. They begin to listen to their friends. Suddenly they lose that interest in the things of heaven. Their their focus begins to narrow. And they begin to focus on the things of this world. And have you ever watched a student go from this light, bright kid to this dark, brooding soul? Verses 22 and 23. Where your focus is, that's what illuminates your life. 
and either brings light or darkness. Now, when that happens, we pray, oh, God, convert our kids and God restore our kids. And, And we love to see that grace of God bring them back to living a light full of life. But Jesus is saying, you should amass heavenly wealth because if you amass all your wealth in this place, then your gaze will be fixed there, your heart will be attached there, and your life will be full of darkness. Our treasure always attracts our heart. Colossians says this to us in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 2. It says, set your affection on things above, not on the things of the earth. The word set means to, to establish, to fixate upon, to interest yourself in. And what Jesus is saying in Matthew 6, loved ones, is this. That if you want to set your affection in heaven, If you want your gaze, your heart, your soul longing for heaven, then don't build all your wealth down here. But amass greater wealth in heaven. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Because then our hearts will follow where our treasure is. So, the Bible says, do a values assessment in your life. Am I living with covetousness and worldly desires and focused on money and possessions? Or am I content with what God gives me and I'm using what he gives me for his glory? Well, if I'm going to get that right, then I need to set my affection. That's what Jesus teaches. Now, the second thing that Jesus would say, write it down, is then that we must serve God and not money. It's really simple. It comes from where I set my affection and then I must begin to act upon it. So serve God and not money. This is verse 24. No man can serve two masters. For he will either hate the one and love the other, else he'll hold to the one and reject or despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Hear the declaration of Jesus. It's not that it's hard or difficult. If you try really hard, you can do it. You cannot. You cannot serve God and money. Now, the word serve means means what it says, to, to be the servant of or to be enslaved to. Here's a way to say it. To serve means to be under the mastery of another. And when I am content, I came here with nothing, I'm leaving here with nothing, I'm trusting God while I'm here to give me everything that I need and I can be content and rest in that and use it all for his glory. When I am content as the slave of Christ, then I can master money and possessions and wealth. They, They won't master me. I can master those things and use those things in his provision for his glory and for my good and enjoy those blessings. But when I am the slave of money, when verse 24, when I serve money instead of serving Christ, that's what mammon is, it's money or wealth. When I serve money, I'm a slave of money and then I become the object of my own devotion. So when I'm enslaved to Christ, Christ is first. When I'm enslaved to money, I'm first. So everything that I get for me. It runs through the filter of what do I want first? How do, how do I take possession of this? How does this serve me and, and what I want? And then maybe I'll do other things with it, but I come first when I'm the slave to money. I come first when I'm a slave to Christ. Christ comes first. Simply put, we need to master money or money will master us. It's absolutely true. Jesus warned, Paul warned If you don't master money, it will master you. Somebody has said that money is like a power tool. It's like a big skill saw or a sawzall. One of these big power tools. It can do great harm or it can build beautiful things. 
And the difference is made by the skill and the wisdom of the one in whose hands the tool is. And you put money in the wrong hands and it will do great harm every time, but you put money in the right hands and God will use it to do beautiful things with it. And so verse 24 says, look, you have to decide. You're either going to serve God or you're going to serve money or wealth or worldliness or covetousness. You can't serve both. So the command is make a choice. Decide. Here's my challenge to you today. Whose servant are you? Do you serve your own desires and the wealth of this world or do you serve serve Jesus Christ? Make a choice. And I'll tell you, it's not a new choice that you and I have to make. God's people have been commanded, been called, been challenged to make this choice over and over and over. Since God has had a people, they have been commanded to make this choice. Joshua 24, 15, many of us know. Here's the the passage. Choose you this day. Decide. Choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. Exodus 32, 26. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who's on the Lord's side? Decide. Who are you serving? And those that would serve the Lord, he said, come to me. 1 Kings 18, verse 21, Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long are you going to go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow him. If Baal is God, then follow him. But the command of Elijah is to make a choice. My challenge to all of us this morning is to know this. You can't serve both, and you must choose whom you will serve. Now, the third thing and the final thing that Jesus would teach us is, number one, I need to set my affection, so I need to build wealth in heaven so my heart will be there. Then I need to make a decision. Once I'm setting my heart, I'm going to serve God and not money. And then thirdly, then we do that by seeking his kingdom first. Seeking his kingdom first. Now, don't forget where we started. Remember, set your affection in heaven by laying up treasure there in heaven. So here's the question. Remember, the word treasure means to store up or to make deposits. Here's the question. How do I make deposits in heaven? How do I lay up? How do I amass treasure in heaven? Well, I'm sure the answer to that is, there's many answers to that, many ways that you do it. But the context of Matthew 6, what Jesus is talking about is money and possessions and covetousness and greed versus a heart of serving God. So let's let's apply the text in the way that we receive it. Notice what he says. Look at verse number 33. This is how we do it. This is how we begin to make deposits in heaven. Matthew 6, verse 33. But seek ye first the kingdom of God. His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Here's the command. Here's how we do it. Number one, he says we are to seek. Now the word seek means to desire the promotion of or to, to long to see it advanced, to long after. Okay. The word kingdom, seek the kingdom of God, means the reign, the word kingdom is the, the, the reach or the extent of the rule or the reign of Jesus. This is what we mean in our church vision statement. We believe that Jesus came to build a church that would overpower the forces of hell and enlarge the kingdom of God. Enlarge the what? Kingdom of God. We envision being that church. It means we're extending the reign of Christ. And how do we extend and advance his kingdom? Through gospel ministry, winning people to Christ, making disciples. That's how you extend his kingdom. So Jesus says, here's what you do. He says, you you set your affection in heaven. You decide to serve God and not money. And the way you do that is you seek, you long for the advancement of his kingdom. And when do you do that? Verse 33, you do it first. 
The word first means the highest priority. It gets the foremost importance. It is given first place. Now, if I'm interpreting this passage correctly, I'm interpreting it in light of the context in which it's given, where God says, Jesus says, you cannot serve God or money. It's about my view of worldly goods and possessions and wealth versus a heart surrendered to serving God. If I want to do that, I'm going to put him first. Then here's the principle. Write it down, please. That to lay up treasure in heaven, I must put kingdom investment first in my financial priorities. I must put kingdom advancement first in my financial priorities. If I want to seek the kingdom of God's advancement first, Remember, he says in this verse, verse number 33, look, if you'll do that, God will take care of the worldly things, all these things, food, clothing, raiment, all those things, they'll be given to you. God will take care of that. But he says, you don't put those things first. You don't put yourself first. You put God's kingdom first. Remember, this is all in light of the temptation of affluence. Listen, if we lived in a village in Rwanda and we got by on 82 cents a day and we were living on rice and beans and there was no opportunity, there was no wealth, there was no possessions, it was just a dirt floor and so many people live in this dirt, we probably wouldn't struggle with this. But I'm just telling you, this is where you live. So the temptation of affluence is materialism and it is wealth worship. And so if I'm going to put God first... I'm going to break that temptation of, of materialism. I'm going to break that temptation of uh, wealth worship. Then I break it when I don't put myself first. I put God's kingdom first. If y'all are with me, say amen. You doing okay? I'm going, to, I'm going to put God first, and putting him first is going to begin to break that temptation. So how do I put the kingdom first? Write this down. God has commanded, God commands me to invest my tithe into his kingdom work. This is a clear command of scripture. God commands me to invest the tithe into his kingdom work. Remember what Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6. Command those that are rich in this world that they don't boast in their wealth, they don't trust in their own riches, but they trust in God who gives us all things to enjoy and then command them that they be ready to give away. They live generously, and in so doing, they are making investments, laying up in store for heaven. So here's the simple truth, that God's commanded me, in Timothy's commanded me in Matthew and other passages, that I am to live with generosity, I'm to be a giver, and I'm to give into the work of his kingdom first. So then the next question becomes, well, how much should I give? What does it look like to be a, a, a faithful, an obedient investor in the kingdom. Well, the answer is different for every one of us in the amount, but the guideline is the same. The amount is different. So some people, some people give a lot. They have a lot. They give a lot. Other people have less. They give less. Some's exorbitant. Some's a widow's mite. The amounts are different. The amounts are not what's important. It's the guideline that is important that we must live in obedience to. All right? So I want to I put God first, make his decisions, his kingdom first in my financial priorities. Now, we're going to finish up right back here in Matthew 6. I, I'm just, I've got about five or six more minutes before I'm done with this. But I want to I teach you this, this principle well, okay? So I'm going to ask you to turn to a couple of passages. And I want you to turn. We're not going to put it on the screen because I want you to mark it. I want you to know where this is, okay? So hold your finger in Matthew. We'll come right back here and close. But go over to 1 Corinthians. Go forward in your Bible, right through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then you'll be in Acts and Romans, and then you'll be in 1 Corinthians. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And I want you to listen to how we know 
what it looks like to invest in the kingdom. How much should we give? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse number 2. So the Bible says, Paul writing to the church at Corinth, upon the first day of the week, that's Sunday, when you come together for church, on the first day of the week, let every one of you lay in store. There's that word again. Paul used it to Timothy. Jesus used it. Laying up in store. Here it is again. When you come together, lay in store or give into the kingdom work. Here's the measure. According to how or as God has prospered him. If y'all are listening, shout amen. My giving is not self-determinate. It's not. Verse 16, or verse number, chapter 16, verse number 2 says, My giving is determined, not by, based on what I say it should be, but based on God's prospering of me. So how much I give correlates to how much God has given me. So one person might give a little, they've received less from God. Another person gives a lot more, why? Because they're giving, percentage-wise, is not any more than the person who gave less gave, but it's more because they have received more. It is correlated to how God has prospered us. So how much should I give? The amount is different for all of us. The guideline is the same based on the, on the, coral, uh, on the uh, provision of God. All right, I want you to mark 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2. Once you've done that, go back to the Old Testament book of Proverbs, please. So Psalms is in the middle of your Bible. Proverbs is right after it. Psalms and Proverbs. Go to Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 9. What does that look like? What, what is the portion of that prospering? That I should give. Well, verse number nine says, Proverbs 3, verse 9, honor the Lord with what you have, with your substance. It means your wealth. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your increase. So here's the command that with everything that I get, what I have and what I get, what I have and what I receive, what I currently have and then my increase, here's the command honor God with all of it. Now, let me ask you a question. Does it honor God if everything that I have and everything that I receive, I use for me? No. No, it doesn't honor God. We teach our children this. We give them a $5 allowance, and we teach them. You give God his part, and and, uh, and you you make sure you you give to the Lord's work, and then you save some, and then uh, you be generous, and then you've got some of that's left over for you to spend. But if every time we gave our child an allowance, we said, go spend every penny of it on yourself, we wouldn't be teaching them good financial principles. So, so Solomon teaches us in Proverbs 3, 9, honor God. With everything you get, honor God. And so you honor him by, what does it say? Honor the Lord with your substance and with the what of your increase? With the first fruits. So God says, I want you to give, I want you to give first to me, Right? Seek ye what? First, the kingdom of God. So the command is we honor God when we put him first. We dishonor God when we move him down the rungs of the ladder of what we prioritize with the wealth that he gives us. So we honor him by putting him first. He says, verse number nine, honor the Lord with your substance and with the first fruits of all of your increase. Now, all of you who know your scriptures very well know that the word first fruits means the first, the tithe, it's the first tenth. It's what comes in, everything God gives me, there's a portion of that from the beginning, off the top's going to God's work. 
It's not even mine. Well, really, none of it's mine. It's all his. But I, I'm not, it's not even that I consider that I'm going to do something with it. That belongs to the work of God. Honor the Lord with your substance and with the first fruits of all your increase. Let me show you one other passage. Make your way back toward Matthew, but stop at Malachi. So Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. It's right in front of Matthew. Go to Malachi chapter 3 and verse number 8. Malachi 3 and verse 8. Y'all are doing good. Somebody asked me after the first service, they said, how, how is that preaching like that? I said, it's like, it's like eating vegetables. It tastes pretty good, but it's, it's not ice cream, right? But you got to have it. All right, so look at Malachi chapter 3, verse number 8. It begins with a question. God asking a question. Will a man rob God? Now, you know, so the question is like, would, would you even conceive of the idea? Would you even dare think about the possibility that I might rob Almighty God? Would a man rob God? He says, verse 8, yet you have robbed me. And they say, as you might be saying, wait a minute. When did we rob you? How have we robbed you? Here's his answer. God says, you robbed me in tithes and offerings. Proverbs 3, 9, honor the Lord by giving him the first. The first means the tithe or the tenth. God says, now listen, this is God's word. God says, when you don't, when you don't do that, when you don't put my kingdom first, honor me with the first, and, and make this investment, you are robbing me. Pastor Jim didn't say that. God said that. You are robbing me. He goes on to say, verse number nine, you're cursed with a curse, for you've robbed me, even the whole nation. But here's the remedy, verse number 10, stop doing it. Change, begin to bring all the tithes into the storehouse so that my house might be provided for. There may be meat in my house. God says, this is, this is where we begin. All right, so Paul says to Timothy, Look, charge them that are rich in this world that they, they be ready to give away part of what they give. Jesus says, don't serve God, serve money. Seek first the kingdom. Paul says, when you come together, based on what God's given you, you give to him. Proverbs says, the first fruits off the top. And Malachi says, you measure that by the tenth or the tithe. He says, this is the, the guide for how we invest in the kingdom of God First, Now, here's biblical economics. Biblical economics says everything I have has been given to me by God. Uh, by God. If you believe that, shout amen really loud. Everything I have, God gave to me. I didn't get any of it on my own. Everything I have came from him. So biblical economics says receive it from him. Once you receive it from him, turn around Honor him by saying, God, I don't want to consume. It's not all for me. You're using me to do your work. So, God, I'm going to take the first of that, the tithe, and that doesn't mean it's all I ever give. That's the guideline to begin. I take the tithe, and I'm going to give that right back into your work. So you're going to give to me. I'm going to give some of that away right back into the work of the gospel, into the church, right? And, and so then God says, but that's not the end of the biblical economic equation. Because look at chapter number 3 of Malachi and verse number 10. You bring all the tithes in the storehouse so that we meet my house. Test me now in this herewith, says the Lord. See if I will not open to you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. Here's biblical economics. Everything I have comes from God. He says to me, now honor me by giving some of that back into the kingdom. And as you give it back into the kingdom, I'm going to give back to you what you gave back into the kingdom. If you believe it, say amen. That's the way the plan works. 
So suddenly God says, look, I'm your provider. You're not my provider. Can we agree God doesn't need your money or mine? Right? Because you don't have money, I don't have money. Everything that we have belongs to God. He simply says, everything you have came from me. Now honor me with it, invest it back, but I'm going to provide for you even as you invest. And I have to tell you, you know, somebody said once, and, and uh, I love this, they said, I don't know how this works. I keep giving and I keep having more. You know, world, math says if I give some away, I have less. They say I keep giving away and I end up with more. How does that work? The answer was you shovel out, God shovels in, and God's got a bigger shovel. That's the way it works. So he said, honor me, bring the first, bring the tithe, and I'm going to return to you what you give to me or what you invest in my kingdom. So he says, look, if you want to relate to money rightly, not with covetousness or greed, but with contentment, then learn to put God's work first. And then the final thing, I'm back in Matthew chapter number six now to close. The final thing is that he says that God invites me to trust him to meet all of my needs. But God's not saying, hey, go out and work hard, get an extra job so you can give something into the kingdom. God says, you just take what I give you, you honor me with it, and then I'm gonna meet all of your needs. I love this recurring word or phrase in verse 25 27, 28, 31. This phrase, take no thought. It means don't worry. Don't worry. When, when God says, put me first, make these investments, don't sweat it. Don't, you may be thinking, don't worry. You're telling me to suddenly start giving at a minimum 10% of my income back into the work of God, and you don't want me to worry about that? That's what God says. Don't, don't take no thought. Don't worry about it. You say, why wouldn't I worry about it? And Jesus said, well, just think about the birds. God feeds the birds. They don't plant a garden. They don't reap a harvest. They don't store up in barns. And yet God takes care of them. And then he says, Are, do you not matter more to God than they do? Look at the fields. God dresses the fields with these lilies. Those lilies are beautiful. They didn't make their own clothing. God put them there. And you matter more to God than the lilies or the field. Verse number 32, your heavenly Father knows everything that you need. Loved ones, I want you to hear me. One of the five to survive is don't serve money. And if you have been, stop. Now, some of you may be thinking, and honestly, this is a legitimate response, but we need to understand where it comes from. Some of you are thinking, Pastor, my experience doesn't match up with what you're saying because I do have real needs and I really do fight to keep my head above water and I feel like I'm drowning financially sometimes. And here's the truth. If that's our struggle, it's not because God's economic plan doesn't work. It's because we haven't followed God's economic plan. And I will promise you, 99.999% of the time, the reason that's the case is because we're living above our means, we buried ourselves in debt, and we're taking all or much of what God has given us to simply service debt rather than making sure that we're living within our means. And so there's help for that, and we can remedy that. God's got grace for that. But the point is, God always keeps his word. So Jesus simply says to all of us, invest more in eternity than you invest in this life. Amass more treasure in heaven than you do in the earth. And as you do that, you're laying up this incredible foundation to lay hold and have joy uh, in eternity. So let me close up by giving you some thoughts about what to do next. 
Because you may be asking, so, so how do, what's, what's my next step? What do I do about this? Well, number one, you gotta, you gotta see God's plan, see the wisdom of God's plan. Believe his word, right? And simply say, this is what God says, and I'm, I'm gonna honor it. Make that decision, and then as you, as you, as you believe that God's plan is wise, then evaluate your current situation. How are you doing with this, really? In your finances, is God first? Is he kind of at the tail end, or is he excluded completely? Where is the work of of the gospel in your financial investment? Are you tithing your income to the church? Are you being generous with what God gives you? Nobody can answer that question for you. It's a private question. It's a private answer, but you need to answer it. If you need help, we can help you. You may be saying, man, I'm, I, I, I need somebody to, to look at my finances and, and help me to get a, get a look at what, where I'm at and help me figure out how to get out of this hole I've dug. We can help you with that. There are financial counselors in our church through our counseling office. We'd be happy. It's a, with all con, uh, confidentiality, they're available to you. So let us help if we can. But then choose the Lord and his work first. Loved ones, listen, if you don't choose it, it'll never happen. I promise you. If you don't make a determination, I'm just going to do it. It will never happen. And if you will make that choice, then you will begin to be on the path of blessing. It might mean that you need to repent. I just love you enough to tell you, it might mean that some of us in this room just need to say, God, I'm sorry. Everything I get, I spend. And everything I get, I've, I've got... I'm just getting stuff, 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 stuff. I want, I want, I want. And I simply don't give to the work of God. Or I give a little leftover. And that requires repentance. You should say, God, I'm sorry. And here's the good news. God's mercy is new every morning. Amen? And his, his mercies are there. It's, it's, God's not going to go, really, I didn't know that. I'm mad at you. God's going to say, thank you for being honest. I forgive you. His mercies are new every morning, and then you begin to say, God, I want to take those steps. Determine what, what it would it look like. What's a tithe look like? And, and how can I begin to give that faithfully? And then, loved ones, trust God and his promises, and you will find that he will meet all of your needs. I will give you a testimony from personal experience, and many people in this room could, that it is impossible to outgive God, and that you never go backwards. You never go backwards as you begin to put God first, invest the tithe, honor him with your resources, you will always find your life being blessed and your needs being met every single time. Let's pray together.